Welcome to the African Tech Roundup, episode 109. Now, this is where we round up the most important tech, digital, and innovation news from across the African continent. My name is Andy Lemasugu. Thanks for listening in. I'm rolling heavy today, not because of Musa Kalenga, who we've all come to expect to be on the show, but, uh, oh, so what's up, Musa? What's up, Africa? I'm back. <laughs> That's true. And um, it's not just Musa and I here today. We have a special guest in the building, a certain VJ. Okay, BJ, you're going to just need to pronounce your surname for me. I don't want to butcher it. You're right here, and it'll be too embarrassing. Yeah. You just say BJ, BJ and Renault. So when you say heavy, it's a you know heavy lifting. The name has a quite a few uh, vowels in there, you know. BJ Vijendranath. That's right, BJ Vijendranath. Founder and CEO of a company called TapSnap, as well as one or two other startups that we may or may not get to speaking about today. But welcome, 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 bro. Thank you very much. Uh, glad to be here. A bit of a homecoming for you because you were on the show early on before, like, I think back when we had like two listeners. Oh, yeah, exactly. And that's including you and me. <laughs> yes, and my and our parents. <laughs> You've got three now, right? <laughs> so, yeah, no, well, so it's way more than two, I guess. So, yeah, that, that's good. I mean, at least uh, more than my mother listens to this. That's great. It's absolutely great. Thank you so much for joining us. And everybody to listening to us today, thank you so much for prioritizing this appointment. We love it that you join us each time we come out. Uh, and this week, we'll be discussing the fallout that ensued following the publication of an article I wrote. Yes, guilty as charged. Um, I wrote an article for African Independent and Business Report that pretty much went viral. It's probably the first thing that properly went viral that I've ever done. Um, it was an, an article highlighting the thorny issue of investor bias in Africa's startup funding scene. We definitely need to come into into finding out a little more about that. I certainly want to know what your thoughts are, VJ. Musa and I, we've been talking about this for a while. Gentlemen, we'll definitely be about that business in a while. The other thing we'll be discussing is the trend towards, quote-unquote, the Uberization of everything, which plays into uh, what TapSnap does. And uh, VJ, I look forward to your insights in that regard. Someone, you know, was in an elevator and we only had two floors to go, right? So I'll have to say it's an Uber for something. But if I had, you know, maybe six floors, seven floors, and you're sitting in Dubai and you're going up the, you know, Burj Khalifa, then I can say, you know, it's the on-demand platform that does, etc., etc. So it's easier to explain. So one hand, yes, it's easy to tell you what it does, but I don't really like the Uberization terms that's being used for startups. To be fair, I don't like the term Uberization. I do think that it's a great place to start given that Uber's back in the headlines this week. So we'll get to all that. Um, but first, this episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by GoDaddy. Now, GoDaddy makes registering domain names fast, simple, and most importantly, affordable. They are indeed the world's largest domain registrar. They're trusted by over 13 million customers around the globe, and they provide everything you might need to get your business set up online, including award-winning 24-7 support. Now, to save your off 30% on a new domain name or to use any of their other services, go to trygodaddy.com forward slash African Tech. Again, that's trygodaddy.com forward slash African Tech to save yourself 30%. And of course, thank you to all of you who have made use of this offer in the past. Uh, we definitely do feel the love because every time you do, we, we enjoy some uh, residual income as a result of that purchase. So go ahead and support a really great business that will give you a lot of value, but also indirectly support us. Right, gentlemen, are you ready? I am ready. Ready to roll. 
So let's jump into this week's news. Um, let's start with easily the biggest news this week. And of course, today we'll be speeding through these items because uh, really I just want to take full advantage of having uh, Vijay and Musa here with me uh, to bounce ideas off of. Like My mind's just been nuts, like looking forward to this conversation because, you know, often, you know, just chatting on your own doesn't quite do. So <laughs> let's get through some of the most important news items that have gone down in the last fortnight, starting with, of course, um, China and indeed Asia's wealthiest man, uh, Alibaba CEO Jack Ma visiting East Africa this week. Now, refreshingly, I've gotten no such uh, sort of Mark Zuckerberg vibes from you know Jack Ma's visit because he didn't come here trying to promise sort of we are the world and let's sing Kumbaya and make you know and make this world a better place. He came here with thirty eight billionaires in tow. He's all about the business, guys. What do you think of this? Um, I love the fact that he says I'm going to have this much money. And we need to invest in this much time for African startups. I like that. Yeah, because uh, that's one of the big announcements that came out, um, uh, partnering with um, a UN agency to uh, announce basically a $10 million um, uh, Africa e-commerce-focused startup fund that should go live in 2018. Uh, sounding really, really good. I, hitting a lot of the right notes, very little to, to sort of criticize. I mean, I saw some people kind of, you know, taking umbrage to certain things he said. I mean, he's a hot take machine, this man. But certainly loads of positive vibes on this visit from this guy. Yeah, positivity, I think, is, 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 uh, is great. But uh, I'm always the kind of guy who wants to understand the conditions, right? So that, that kind of money being spent by a, uh, a very astute businessman like Jack Ma um, needs to be analyzed and understood in the long term, right, as we've been saying for the, last, uh, for the last while. So I think the intention, if you compare his visit, as you meant, to the Zuckerberg visit, was probably a lot more deliberate and commercially driven. Um, and I don't think he made any, uh, any, many excuses about that. Um, my caution and my, you know, my plea is always about investors engaging um, with men and with businesses of that ilk that they need to understand that they need to have their story straight, number one. Number two, when we're transferring value back into the Africa value chain, um, we need to do, in, do so in such a way that's responsible. So I think the hype is great, but I think when the tide goes out, we need to make sure that we've got our, uh, you know, our dots crossed and our teased, uh, was it the other way around? Our, our, <laughs> Our eyes dotted and our T's crossed, but uh, definitely a good show of faith. And I think uh, you know the Asian persuasion is very, very much interested in Africa. They're investing all over the place. Jack Ma is no uh, is no exception. And I'm really looking forward to see where that money lands. Um, and as a result, I think it will inform some of the stuff that needs to be done post uh, post those transactions. So, I mean, let's face it, he, he was in Rwanda and Kenya. Uh, Kenya's obviously still enjoying the afterglow of the Obama era. Rwanda is the toast of the town at the moment. Apparently, can't put a foot wrong. Socially progressive. Yeah, all this sort of commercial innovation that's going on in, 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 in Rwanda. It's just the place everyone wants to see. It's not just about gorillas anymore. Uh, you know, everyone wants to be in Rwanda. But Jack, to your point, Jack Ma's visit appears to be rather meticulously timed. It comes in the wake of the successful deployment of no less than three. $3.2 billion worth of Chinese foreign aid. Uh, did he, I, I didn't mean that. I mean foreign direct investment. <laughs> <laughs> yep, Freudian slip, right? <laughs> I, I really did not mean to say foreign aid, genuinely speaking. Foreign direct investment, of course, going towards um, that, uh, you know, very expensive standard gauge railway, um, which is, you know, Kenya's largest infrastructure development project since their independence. And then, of course, only a week or so ago, uh, President Yoweri Museveni of Uganda announcing a $2.9 billion rail project project courtesy of funds or a loan granted by the state-funded China Exim Bank. Uh, all of this happening, you know, 
only what, a, a month or so away from the election. So Jack Ma making sure that he's not arriving in a, in a Kenya that's too hectic uh, from that perspective, ignoring Nigeria altogether where there's an ailing president who, you know, with, with dodgy health and, of course, recessionary issues. Recessionary issues down south in South Africa, what with Gupta Gate and, and President Jacob Zuma's presidency in all sorts of trouble at the moment, going to what's easily... Africa's sweet spot in terms of investment right now. Question is, does it serve us as well as we'd hope? Well, um, look, question is, why wasn't Mark in South Africa when he came and did his We Are the World speech? You know, um, so it, obviously Kenya has a potential future. It's growing well. So is, I think, um, Ethiopia as well. It's growing really well. They're showing positive attitude to entrepreneurs. It's actually easier to get a f- uh, funding for your business over there than over here. So there's obviously just too much red tape and recession right now in South Africa. That's true. And I mean, certainly I mean, in Rwanda, like you can literally get your, your, your business registered in like a matter of, of, of hours, I believe. I mean, there's a lot of great stuff out there. So not to minimize all the good reasons we should be excited about the region. I believe there was an Ernst & Young, a recent Ernst & Young report saying definitely in terms of investor sentiment, that's the place to be at the moment. That said, uh, the hot take that, that you know, Jack Ma left me with, uh, I didn't watch everything he said. I did catch some of the more interesting stuff he did uh, say while he was at the University of Nairobi. He addressing failure said the following, you have to get used to failure. If you can't, then how can you win? Gold, man, gold. <laughs> love it. I missed that as well, but I'd love to see that. <laughs> well, staying with East African news, however, uh, it's not so great this time. The Ushahidi scandal is still trending, folks, and unfortunately for good reason. Now, you know it's really bad when your profile page on Wikipedia reads as follows. Ushahidi Incorporated is a non-profit crisis mapping software company that is in a crisis following a sexual harassment scandal that led to the firing of the company's executive director, Dawoodi Were. Oh, my word. Do that literally the first lines about Ushahidi when you wiki, you know run a search on Wikipedia. Um, unfortunately, we're starting to see some Silicon Valley tendencies as far as uh, harassment, uh, certainly in terms of prejudice, uh, things that have been trending in Silicon Valley of late come through to the African continent. We need to nip this in the bud. I'm not sure if it's a cultural issue, but clearly because startups being so male-dominated, studies have shown, indications have shown, this is why it happens so often. It's just very male-dominated industry, and this is why we need to make a change from the top down. Absolutely. Angela Kabari, shout-out to you. That's the name of the lady who's actually at the heart of this of this debacle. It's been months since um, she was allegedly uh, harassed by Mr. Daudi Were, who is in fact a, an executive director, or was, uh, because he has since been suspended. She put out a diabolical breakdown of blow-by-blow happenings she, she posted on Medium in the last week or so, basically saying, I will not be silenced. And just in case we get a, a spinned version of what happened, this is what happened. And really, it, it's it's dreadful stuff. Uh, and I'm hoping that it gets resolved sooner rather than later. Uh, it implicates, of course, the directorship of Ushahidi, some really big names in East Africa's tech startup scene, not least Eric Hirschman, people who really, I feel, should have treated this issue a lot better, much more proactively, certainly with more um, efficiency and without victimizing the victim. Big up, uh, big up to her. You know, being victimized of this, in this nature, in this industry, um, is something that we're seeing more and more in media. And I think it's super unfortunate. I was actually having a conversation with 
um, some startup founders, some female startup founders uh, in Cape Town a few weeks back. Um, and they were just speaking about it quite honestly in the context of, you know, there's just so much pressure already. I mean, we understand the, the, the plight of many women across the, the continent. We understand the plight of an African woman, let alone that. Um, and to just understand kind of what it means to go through this kind of thing in an environment where you're in a tech space that's meant to be progressive, that's meant to be, um, you know, having your best interest. And on top of that, that happening with someone that's in a leadership position. So I think there's a lot that we need to take away from it. I think it's uh, diabolical and unfortunate, as, as Vijay has mentioned. Um, but once again, you know, it's better that we've surfaced it to the light. And I think the actions from Mushahidi um, need to be quite decisive. Um, I think the statement that they've released so far is a little bit weak for me. But uh, big up to her for calling it out. And Ushahidi, do the right thing. I think that's, uh, that's the important response. And of course, all the other women who've sort of lived in fear, um, starting to come to the fore, I'm hoping this is the start of creating an environment where no one ever feels they need to stay in the shadows, particularly when they, they've been victimized. Um, certainly, the irony is not lost on the fact that Ushahidi is the Swahili word for testimony, which is, of course, <laughs> linked to the, the Swahili word for witness, which is Shahidi. Yeah. No doubt, um, Angela Kabari and and all and some of the other women coming to the fore, standing as witness and certainly providing testimony to the effect that sexual harassment does not belong in our ecosystem. It must end now. And so to Nigeria next, where a big shout out to the Yaba Tech community in Lagos that's currently developing a charter of sorts. Um, they're calling it the Open Yaba Manifesto. It's currently being debated right now. You can check it out at radar.techcabal.com or just Google Open Yaba Manifesto uh, you know, in your browser and, and, and go and see what really is inspiring me at the moment uh, in seeing easily the most prominent sort of tech community in Nigeria. I mean, shout out to you, Abuja and, and other places where, you know, perhaps you don't, you're not getting as much, as much attention as, as, as the as sort of the tech contingent in, in Lagos. Shout out to you all, but really shout out to, to, to the Yaba community for to taking the decision to organize and basically agree in, on what sort of values they want to see espoused in their ecosystem. So here are a couple of different objectives that they they recently identified um, and have so far established as the main articles of the manifesto. There was something called the Yaba Town Hall, which was convened on the 23rd of June. And since then, there's been very, very um, lively and passionate debate around what needs to be included, uh, what's important to the, to, to, to the community, what definitely needs to be left out and things like that. Um, but some of the main things are culture, you know, what sort of spirit and community do, we, do, do they want to build? What sort of mechanisms should um, should be promoted in terms of funding startups in the Yaba, in the Yaba cluster? Um, what about talent, the importance of building it and, and, and growing it? Infrastructure, how, how does the, the cluster intend to, to overcome issues of, you know, sketchy power supply? What about the traffic issues in, in Lagos? What about broadband and parking, stuff like that? Then, of course, there's the issue of policy and, and, and providing a, a united front to lobby government and, and regulators and represent the interests of the community, not just within uh, Nigeria, but on, on the African continent and abroad. Um, you know, the role of Lagos in the smart city movement that's taking over the world. Uh, research and development, how much time and effort and resources are being poured into this. I love what I'm hearing. I think it's fantastic. I mean, the notion of 
organizing at this level is certainly inspiring. Um, I think the, the only thing from my perspective that, uh, that is probably a caution is there's, those are big things to be tackling. I mean, those are not small um, objectives and or areas. I mean, smart cities on its own as an idea. I know it's been coming up quite a bit, even with the PwC recent uh, study, even with the Lions of the Move report, urbanization is going to be a big thing for Africa in the next uh, in the next decade or two. Um, so so my, my view is always about, you know, can we find one or two things to focus on and drive you know, real impact. Then I see the categorization that's been happening on the site. There's a lot of interest around talent, which I think is a big issue for a lot of tech companies, um, around figuring out how do we create pipeline, how do we ensure that we're building businesses that, that challenge the right level of talent that's going to be able to solve some of these problems. Um, things like smart cities are obviously great for to drive a political agenda around helping um, countries and, and cities in Africa to, to, to urbanize. But once again, I think that you know, choosing, a, choosing an, an, a battle to fight and fighting it well is probably more important than the big picture but i think this is going to be an iterative process from what i see so they've started the process it's super inspiring um, and i hope they can kind of whittle it down to stuff that they can really drive impact and measurement so on some level i kind of disagree with you musa because i do feel that um short of the community doing this high level sort of vision casting they're basically succumbing to the projection from places like Silicon Valley. In fact, it was quite interesting on Twitter. Uh, recently, I saw uh, one of the community members from Yaba going, listen, we're not Yabacon, we're not Yaba Valley, we're not Yabacon Valley, we are Yaba on our terms. You know, that kind of vibe. I can't remember who you are. Shout out to you, brother. I knew, I know you were a brother who said that. But what I, what I take from that is this idea that, um, is this notion that I fully support, that if you don't plan, someone will plan for you. If you don't strategize, if you don't dream, if you don't assert your sense of values or your your ideas for what works for you, other people will set all those things for you. And I and I and I feel that granted, I mean, the nitty gritties will, might take a, a while to set, and certain priorities will certainly flow to the surface, etc. I do think it's an important thing for the communities in Yaba, specific to this case, to decide. Actually, this is this is who we are. This is who we want to be. And if you want to engage, here are the terms. I love that. Sure. I mean, I think I completely agree with the sentiment. I'm, I'm always kind of, uh, I err on the side of, of, of action, right? So my, my, my question is always to ask, to what end does this achieve actionable stuff? Is this a, is this a community that's going to be engaging in stakeholder conversations? Is it a strategic think tank that's going to be setting, uh, as you said, setting course and kind of putting things in place? Or is this an engine that's going to be able to implement and activate, right? So my view is always, I, I err on the, I, you know, I always kind of have a bias for action and then hence my my, my, my sentiment. Um, so I agree with you in that it is the right thing to do to self-organize. Um, my, my critique is always to say, to what end should be the question that we always ask. And also, we should always hold them accountable to, right? So if they are saying we're coming out as a strategic direction and we're giving a kind of a third hand or the invisible hand that kind of directs and steers, that's great. Um, I think then there's still a need of conversation around the activation, how that actually translates. And to their credit, I mean, they're having the discussions. I mean, people asking the very questions, people from within their community going, guys, what is this going to mean? Let's not sort of just plan pies in the sky. Let's, let's be pragmatic. Let's act. And I'm, and I'm loving the fact that I'm seeing those kind of discussions taking place on, um, on radar.techcabal. Shout out to, to, the, to the sort of stalwarts of the startup movement in, in Nigeria, the likes of Big Cabal, um, the likes of uh, Mark Essien and, and Hotels.ng, uh, really trying to sort of share what they know and also shape the agenda from a practical perspective. Because these are guys who've who've been in the in the trenches for a long. 
long time and they're definitely backing this agenda with a very um, action-oriented uh, uh, sense of, of urgency and all the best to you guys. Can't say enough about how excited I am to see this come together. Now, staying with Nigeria, according to a report by the Nigerian Communications Week, uh, the NCC, the Nigerian Communications Commission, has basically invited uh, all the country's telcos to attend a meeting on the 3rd of August to discuss an issue um, that they're becoming really upset about. In fact, they laid down the law, as it were, saying that by Friday, July 28th, all mobile telcos have to have uh, stopped the ability for people to use call masking or what's also called call refiling. It's it's something that's long been considered uh, an illegal thing in South Africa. But um, in Nigeria, obviously, the NCC wanting to make sure that mobile telcos comply and presumably calling them on the 3rd of August to tell them what might happen if they don't. Well, of course, you know, it'll be good to know that if someone calls me and the number uh, is, you know, some sort of communications company, turns out it's a scammer, you know. Uh, we, we've got to we've got to prevent that problem. I know it's uh, uh, it's illegal here, but it is still used in South Africa, even though it's still illegal. So sometimes when I call, very often there's a company that provides Simbox solutions. So when you call a company, they will they will reroute the call through another country because it's cheaper. So you're actually getting a receiving call. Let's say my wife calls me from South Africa. The number is a different number from a different country because it's being rerouted through there because it's cheaper and. Uh, I can't trust it. So that's an issue right there. Um, they d- definitely need these solutions like some companies provide where they can route your original number through through it so you still see the original number even though it's being rerouted. That technology can be implemented. And definitely Nigeria with um, outstanding issues around terrorism and and fraud in general. I mean, Nigeria continues to be dogged by the notion that it's a very, you know, corrupt, you know, business environment. Definitely something that I, I imagine the, the NCC would want to nip in the bud. Yeah. And I mean, look, I think the reality is that transparency is a key tenet for um, a modern and a working democracy, uh, democracy. and transparency translates itself into lots of different things. But call masking itself, you know, stands against that and flies in the face of being transparent. Um, the downstream effects of that are, you know, the corruption or uh, the fraud and, you know, the misuse or ill use of of, of communication technology. But um, yeah, let's try and let's try and hold those those principles uh, high. I mean, I think it's great that we've seen telcos in the last couple of months really taking, you know, solid positions on this kind of thing and slapping fines and doing the rest of it. And I say go for it, encourage that kind of thing. Yep, and they've said that um, if by Friday the 28th of July, um, call masking, if, if call masking hasn't come to an end, um, telecoms uh, should expect to to be, uh, you know, to be slapped with stiff penalties. And we know at this point that the NCC don't play. Some told, someone just told me when I heard on TV, uh, when I saw it on TV, he said it was a civilizational problem. Oh, my word. Did you just go there? Yes. Like Macron? Are you serious? <laughs> that's exactly. If people think that, that's what they'll think of uh, Africa and, and all the scam and all this issue. This is where it comes down to. But yeah, please don't don't help that man make a point about using that word. Not him. I'm saying that's the attitude that they have that makes them realize that this is what we are about and this is why it happens. Yeah, and which is why we need to organize. Whether it means our regulation regimens need to be set and 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 rigorously policed, whether it, it's our communities setting mandates and sticking by them and teaching the world basically how to play with us. That's why we need to set up our own rules. Uh, I think as we get to in, into the discussions, I'll uh, elaborate a bit more. But this is why we need to have our own framework of thinking, right? So don't rely on the system that they are making. 
let's do our own. Let's build it. And I think you, you guys will agree. If we make our own rules, we can set our own future. Well, let's now talk about a company that's well accustomed to setting their own rules and has really suffered in the last sort of three or four years as a result. We're talking MTN. Yes, they're back in the headlines again. They've been nabbed ripping data customers off in South Africa. Now, we have uh, mybroadband.com to thank for looking into this quote-unquote disappearing data issue. Now, this issue is, is something my own wife has actually complained about. I kept, I kept like... I'm like, baby, it can't be, man. Just switch off all your apps or basically join Wi-Fi as often as you can. But no, as it turns out, it's actually a thing. This fact that you buy data from MTN and whether you use it or not, whether you're actually on their network or not, you could your phone could be sitting on Wi-Fi somewhere not engaging with their LTE network at all, but they've been systematically charging you for data because of quote unquote it costs data in the background to to keep your connection alive or to keep your 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 status with them alive how ridiculous mtn my word these guys are thieves man <laughs> like, like i mean i you know the, the reality is that the problem with data and i've i've said this time and time again is that you actually there is no point in your life where you can get an accurate understanding of how much data you're consuming in real time Right. So if you try and do that on your phone or you try and make up the settings and you try and switch certain things off, at any point, there's always going to be inaccurate information relating to how much data you've consumed because of the lag period between the time the, uh, the, the telco sends you information and what you've consumed. So number one, that's a problem. Number two, even with these other things that you're going to be switching off your data, trying to get on networks, blah, 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 this notion of data still being consumed because your apps are on is going to mean that you actually cannot control your data consumption. Um, the third thing is that up until now, consumers have been complaining, and I've been one of them. I had huge issues with the, with the other red uh, institution. Um, and I used to go to them on a daily basis, and I used to say, guys, let's sit down and let's recon my data consumption. And time and time again, they would literally refund me north of 10, 20,000 rand because they went, well, we made a mistake, so here's kind of an in, in, you know, in kind or a favor in gesture so that we can just make this go away. And I'm saying, that's 10 or 20,000 rand. How often has this been happening? And if I hadn't taken you to task, this would have just slipped up. So I've got big issues with this, but I'm glad that it's improved now empirically and unequivocally, and I hope they do something about it. Did MTN say it happens because it happens in the background or because they don't know how to not bill it? So here's what happened, right? So what my broadband and them did, they basically took two different smartphones, um, tested uh, different SIM cards from all the, the, ne the network providers, right? Put like 12 Rand, 6 Rand, like really small amounts of data on each SIM and left them be. Right, without connecting them to the to the internet for a short period of time, so of the twelve rand, say or arguably six rand, I can't remember the amount. Literally, it it, it literally it, without being on the network, the amount actually went down. And and what MTN is saying is basically there is some sort of data loss because. In, in, inherent in you being a subscriber to their network, right? That has nothing to do with your phone. Literally. Uh, using data as you sort of download content or watch stuff or apps, you know, updating and that. I mean, that's that's ridiculous. So, in other words, they're almost arguing that there's a technical data loss in that process, which I have a hard time believing. I can't believe it. Um, surely this is illegal. Surely there's going to be some sort of case, and they have to return that money. Um, will that happen? 
it remains to be seen. I hope our regulators listen to the show. If we look how efficiently taken to task um, companies like Google and Facebook and, and major tech companies and even like the Microsoft of this world, the attention to detail that regulators seem to apply to their jobs in, uh, in the Eurozone. We need to start to see that kind of stuff happening here. This has come to the fore not because regulators have in investigated it, not because, you know, ICASA has sort of taken these guys to task. It's literally because of, of some great journalism in this case and and, and really a, a hashtag data must fall campaign that's made this topical, you know, and that's just can't be the way things I mean, you have to. We have to take a leaf out of the book of the, you know, the, the regulators in, in Europe long before any of us complained about monopolistic tendencies in Google or people in Europe did. They were already investigating it because they could see it wasn't right. We need that sort of dispensation in terms of our regulations, in, in terms of our regulators on, on the continent. Well, I can't believe it. It was even it's, it's even happening right now. I did read somewhere that they said they didn't know how to bill it. Like they didn't know how to keep track of it. That's why it's happening. So it's leaking because they don't have control of it. That's the impression I had, which is actually ridiculous. Okay, so let's open the mic because this is not a one-sided conversation. We're not an elitist organization. We're not an elitist platform. We're happy to speak to anybody who's part of this community. If you happen to be a higher up at MTN or if you happen to be embedded in the organization or a spokesperson for that organization or have a technical know-how or technical information that can enlighten us to the situation as to why it's been happening, if it's still happening, and what might happen as a recourse for all the people who've suffered because it happened, please give us a shout. You know to find us on Twitter, we're at African Roundup. On Facebook, we're facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup. And of course, drop us an email at hello at africantechroundup.com. Now, moving on, shout out real quick to an e-health startup called HereX, uh, a South African-based startup that has raised over $2.8 million from you know, various international investors. They'll be using the money to expand their product range. Apparently, their first product was an app that detected uh, hearing loss using real-time environment monitoring tech. The reason we raised this, uh, you know, this achievement in passing is because I think for a lot of our listeners, there are only so many things buzzing on the continent. There's a lot more to Africa than fintech. There's a lot more to Africa than then uh, e-learning, for example, or some of the larger trends that we see developing, large infrastructure trends, there is serious uh, high-tech happening on the continent and it's attracting real money, real investment. So check it out. In, in case you're listening to the show for the first time and you didn't know, now you know. Uh, moving swiftly along now to a quick shout-out. We want to give the Ministry of Education in Botswana who are apparently in the process of training over 400 teachers uh, to code. Well done to you. Again, this is a, a great signal, a great trend that we're observing. Uh, we complain when we see big companies like the Googles and the IBMs, you know, sell us these, we're going to train a million women, we're going to train a million people, da 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 da, da. Uh, and, and we complain that, you know, they're doing it for their own sort of PR purposes. And The truth is, if we don't gear up as a continent for this digital-led uh, future that we're headed for, the truth is it will eat us up. So well done to you, Botswana. What do you guys think? Absolutely. I think big up to Botswana. They've always been fairly progressive with their approach. Um, and I think the trainer trainer is not, not nothing new, but I think the content is fantastic. So yeah, big up Botswana. 
when we were talking Nigerian news, I forgot to shout out Paystack, a fintech startup that uh, specializes in uh, in payments technology. Uh, a billion naira processed in a single month uh, recently. Um, that's about three point one million dollars that they they now uh, handling on a monthly basis. That's pretty impressive considering Paystack hasn't been around that long. Definitely, I'd consider one of the more promising second wave of startups that have come out of Nigeria over the last sort of. A decade and a half or so, uh, I'd consider you know the likes of Hotels.ng as part of the first wave. You know, um, this is now a second wave of like bigger, stronger, more well-resourced. Certainly, uh, great uh, you know fortified with great talent. Paystack certainly doing a, a great job. And I raise it because you and I must have talked about some weeks ago. You know that report that said there's like three, four hundred odd startups. You know, fintech startups coming up in, in Africa. It's this big thing. And you and I both sat here and went, how important that really? How many of them are actually you know, newsworthy. And when it comes down to value, rubber meets road, revenue, traction, how many of them should we actually be excited about? Turns out we definitely should be excited about Paystack. It wasn't even on our radar, right? So it just tells you that there's probably a lot happening out there. And hopefully we can refine that. I know you've reached out uh, to to get that information and to have the conversation so we can expand on that. But uh, as I said before, it's kind of overwhelming to think about 300 fintech startups. But uh, let's keep our eyes on the ones that are doing well. So Paystack, um, definitely one of the ones to watch. Yeah, let's be honest. Not all of them can be can be doing well or worth you know sort of being excited about. But certainly, as you said, we'll definitely have some people. I won't say who, but we ha- definitely have some guests lined up in the future to sort of what, help us see the wood from the trees. I think that's how the English say it. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. Something like that. If, if I'm wrong, well, sue me. Whatever. Um, also, uh, news from Nigeria. Um, Microtraction is the latest VC effort to come together in Nigeria. What's unique about them is that they have a specific uh, emphasis towards um, early stage startups, which we've said a lot on the show. We need to see a lot more VC interest, Africa, homegrown interest or investor interest in the early stage startup landscape on the continent. I don't know. We congratulated them on on Twitter this week and we certainly wish them well. Um, But I don't know if their model of offering $15,000 up front to promising startups and up to $65,000 if the startups show promise, if that's sufficient to sort of guarantee success in an environment like Nigeria where they've, you know, they, we certainly know that runways need to run at least into a million odd to either get to MVP or some sort of major benchmark beyond seed, you know, that kind of thing. So, I don't know. I'm not sure. What, what do you make of this, VJ? Do you think uh, we should be excited about it? Or are we going to see a sort of 88 miles per hour type crash and burn from from this sort of approach? Okay, by strict definition, a VC doesn't work with that kind of amounts, with that kind of percentage of a company. That is generally angel funding. But even then, you can't be taking 6.5% of a company. We're talking 0.5% in the beginning to get you going. Money like that, $15,000, doesn't actually get you out the door at all. You know, it, it, the whole point of funding is to help you scale, grow, help you stand out and really have impact with whatever you're doing. So it needs to be in the amounts of hundred to $200,000 and then perhaps 6% um, uh, f- uh, share of the company. So it's good that it's available but bad because companies are going to be desperate. They're going to take it. They're going to be working their ass off to get this done. And they're going to actually lose out on future deals because they've already given away too much. Wow. No, actually, it's $15,000 for 7.5%. You even... You... Oh, 7.5%. It's even, even worse. Okay, 
it's actually worse than you thought. Yeah, I mean, you, your sentiments are gel with the sentiments I heard Mark Essien, um, founder and CEO of Hotels.ng, express on easily the most enlightening conversation, startup conversation I've heard in a long time. Shout out to Doton, who, who, who taped it and, and, and published it in, in, in the last week or so. Uh, and, and Mark Essien was basically telling him why, you know, he's basically tracked the, the failure of every startup that took less than a certain amount. Um, he, he, he cited something like 5,000. These are, these are common sort of prize money type levels, you know, 5,000, 10,000, 15,000, um, typically for as much as 30% of your business. And he reckons that if you're, if you're the type of startup founder who's willing to give away as much for as little, chances are you are inherently unfit as a startup founder and this thing is going to fail. I tend to agree with that. I mean, it's almost a little bit of an insult because that means you have no clue how to value your own value. Um, And that's typically systemic. And uh, to offer that kind of money, I think, is also irresponsible to a certain extent. Um, I mean, the name micro-traction implies that they're there to try and support micro-business. But then we're making the assumption that micro-business are are capped at what they can potentially have as upside. So I tend to agree with Marquesian sentiment. I don't think there's going to be any kind of, you know, impact development from that i think it's like you know it's, it's a loan pretty much um unsecured loan for lack of a better word but it's a loan with conditions that are just completely unrealistic um it also says that with the fifteen thousand uh, dollars uh 7.5 equity stake you get an extra fifty thousand dollars in convertible note which is a loan so you're getting a loan of 50 plus fifteen thousand equity at a one million dollar valuation cap that is actually incorrect you cannot have a one million dollar valuation with a pre-valuation amount of fifty thousand dollars maybe $100,000, maybe $200,000, not $1 million. So they are over-inflating their investment uh, with, that, with that kind of expectation. So the desperate are going to go for this, I guess? Absolutely, and there's plenty of desperate people out there. Um, you know, just to have the naughty badge, to have received investment, um, no matter the no matter the amount, no matter the what you gave up. I think there's a lot of people out there that would go for that. So it's a sad reality, but um, it's probably going to succeed because of it. Listen, we certainly wish uh, Yele Badimosi and his team um, all the best. Uh, that said, um, if you'd like to come on the show and, and basically perhaps share your rationale for make, for this approach, perhaps there's things about the Nigerian context we're misunderstanding. I can't imagine what we're not getting, but if there is something we're missing and you'd like to school us, if you're involved at uh, Microtraction or indeed uh, Yele, if you're listening, give us a shout and uh, let's talk about this thing, bro. We are going to talk a little more about investment later on. We won't segue there just yet, but um, yeah, definitely coming back to this investment issue before we, you know, tap out the show. Our final uh, story for this week, um, one we certainly couldn't leave out, also because of how it's uh, sort of developed since the last time we spoke about it, the Uber, the Uber, the Uber, 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 the Uber. Um, Uber in South Africa, we, we, we shared with you the last time we were on the show that um, the, the CCMA, which is basically an arbitration court in, in South Africa, that, um, where you know, typically employees dra- drag their, their employers to when they, you know, they're seeking reparations for this or that. Um, well, seven Uber drivers dragged Uber there some months ago, and that, uh, the CCMA ruled that they had every right to because, in their opinion, Uber was their employer. Right, and um, I, I can't remember if they were they, they dragged Uber there for the same reason. I do know that um, they all shared in common the fact that Uber had taken them off the system unfairly, and they were they were contesting that. 
be that as it may, the big news was that um, Uber would now be considered an employer within the context of South African law and all the implications that we discussed on the last show sort of as to what that might do in terms of their business model, et cetera, et cetera. So that's you caught up in case you missed it last time. However, um, since then, Uber's come out saying, well, listen, firstly, this ruling is specific to the seven people who dragged us to this court. Uh, we've appealed the decision to the labor court, which is now uh, where sort of legal precedent would be set if they lost this case or indeed if this was if this ruling were you know set aside um that's where precedent would be set and and so they're saying listen one take note that we're saying that only these seven this applies to only these seven so don't you other uber drivers be jajarach and come here and say we're your employer number one number two we're appealing it um number three we maintain what we've always said, we're not an employer. We're a tech company that helps people, you know, drivers connect with riders and riders connect with drivers. And go. Musa Kalenga. What bollocks. <laughs> Look, I mean, let's be realistic here, right? I mean, how can you ring fence seven people and say this only applies to them? Just on principle, that is just doesn't make any sense. Um, Uber's challenges with legislation are so deep and so unfortunate and I think in a country like South Africa where, um, you know, given the history of how people have been taken advantage of because of the background and the political situation, I, th- I don't think the courts will rule too much, you know, will, will be, too, uh, uh, to be too kind to them. I really think they're going to laugh this out of the court, but I think they're going to rule in favor of the, the seven drivers. And once it happens, precedent is set. Um, and once again, we've had the discussion about the fact that Uber's business model is predicated in most cases on breaking the law. And this is one of those instances where you can't have people that are working for you. You're dispensing income through your system and you, and you, you know, you assume that you're not going to be an actual employer. So I think it's a, I think it's a load, but I, you know, I really, I hope that they get uh, taught a bit of a lesson. My, my, my question is bigger than that though, is that will that have a ripple effect in the rest of the organization? Because as you know, um, you know, recently I think Bozoma St. John has come on as the, as the new, uh, the new leader. Um, and whether this kind of thing will actually feature on their radar as a signal for them to change things because we know culturally they've got challenges. We know strategically they've got challenges. We know internally they've got lots of issues. So I wonder whether this is a big enough kind of signal for change or whether it's not. Um, but I don't think they're going to get it right in the, in, 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 in the courts in South Africa anyway. Um, and I hope that just sends the right red flag to her. I think their um, uh, competition around the world, not least Kareem up, up north in Egypt, uh, you know, operating into the Middle East and stuff, smelling blood in the water going, hey, this might be our opportunity to take advantage of, you know, what f- frankly has been large but few weaknesses in this Uber business model. Um, and going, listen, maybe we have the opportunity to sort of uh, capture the the confidence and uh, of of sort of the sort of monies that have made Uber too big to fail, the you know the sort of the sovereign funds, the big you know the big you know venture capital money and that kind of thing, you know the likes of Kareem going, hey, uh, maybe we could do this better and in a way that won't take everyone off. Um, that said, I'm really conflicted here as someone who pretty much exclusively uses Uber at this point. Um, well, Uber and Taxify, but mostly Uber to be fair. Um, the pragmatist in me is going, surely we need to find a way to make this new crowd economy, uh, you know, vibe. We, we need to make it work. We need to figure out how to make it work. It's easily the more efficient way to distribute our or to channel our resources and make sure that we provide efficient services for everyone, particularly in the transport business. We'll talk about, you know, as a great segue to talking about 
the quote-unquote uberization of everything. We can agree on hating that term, but this idea that, you know, this new crowd economy uh, or this new digital-led economy um, is giving us the opportunity to play smarter and better than ever before. And surely for that reason, on some level, I'm rooting for Uber to figure this thing out. There was a discussion, I think, on one of the radio stations where Taxify, Uber, and the transport guy who represented the meter taxis were speaking, and they were saying, well, the customer is king. If the customer wants it this way, this is how we develop it. So how do we then tell the world, or the customer, you and me, um, if you are happy with the service, why must Uber change? I know fundamentally there are issues with the sexual harassment and the whatever uh, labor issues, but fundamentally, if it's an app that helps you connect with a car, why else must they, why must they do anything else? Because you're the customer who gets what they need, right? Why must they do anything else? On the flip side of, of everything Musa feels very, and feels very strongly on this issue is really quite a simple, you know, quite a simple assertion. And you've just made it, Vijay. Well, I, yeah, I, I think there's, there's merit in that. My argument is that you as a customer, don't, you, don't, you don't love Uber. You, you love the utility that it gives you, right? And therefore, Uber as a business has chosen a route to market that, as we've said before, is predicated on breaking the law. The utility can be given to you by Taxify, can be given to you by a number of other avenues. They were first to market that, the biggest budget. And to be fair, Taxify on some level also break the law in, in some contexts. Sure, but, but the, the, the spirit and the willingness to engage to try and make it right is something that Uber hasn't had as a, at its core. They've employed people in, 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 in uh, what do they call this, in... Uh, uh, positions that are supposed to be engaging with government stakeholders, but those employments have been simply to tick boxes and have been not uh, not uh, not genuine attempts at trying to make things right. And obviously, the pivot now to try and make things right is kind of like: Have you gone too far to actually make this change? Secondly, to make the change, will that fundamentally break their business? And I don't think it will. And if it doesn't fundamentally break your business, why didn't you do it in the first place? Is probably the bigger question. So I don't dispute the utility, and I'm not going to say it's a Uber is a bad thing. I think the utility divorced from the company and the business and the route they've chosen is what's what I'm questioning. I think transport is still a big issue we have to solve, and it's not going to go away. And that is why they're successful. But I attack the business. And the business uh, approach, the strategy, the morals, the leadership, that's where the problem is. If you had a very different set of leaders that were leading that business that provided such a wonderful utility, you'd have a different outcome. Um, now, I'm not saying it's easy. And I'm not saying coming into markets, especially like South Africa, was, was a piece of cake. So big up to them for doing it. But doing it wrong and then now claiming that you have to, you know, you, you have to pivot to make it right because you have to. is kind of like being caught with your pants down, you know. You should have done it right from the first place. And I think because of the size that you had and the money that you had, that's not really an excuse. The excuse is that the culture was wrong and the spirit in which you went to the markets was wrong. So that's my, that's my personal view. Okay, fair enough. And I, and I think I buy into that fully now. But let's, let's talk about this on-demand slash sort of marketplace trend um, as embodied in the context of your business, TapSnap, uh, in a marketplace that allows photographers who often struggle to get enough work to, to keep them busy or some of, even the busier ones would say they could be busier um, with people who on the other side, you know, say individuals or, you know, brands like ourselves or, you know, brand, even bigger brands, they, they struggle with finding on-demand talent when they need it at the, at the best price possible, right? And so tell us how you're sort of riding this, quote-unquote uberization wave and how you've sort of sidestepped or addressed some of the issues that Musa has has brought out as being problematic or inherently problematic if you don't care enough to fix the issues. First, let me say to Musa, 
it's like the uber for photography without the taxi violence okay no without the without the taxi violence <laughs> are you burning the photographers sorry i mean the, the photographers not overturning cars because they lost their photo shoots to another photographer you know? <laughs> i love it love it love it so that's not happening so that's okay so the whole point is we're trying to take an existing business model and streamlining it so that it's available online to you so just like um if meter taxi drivers uh were able to put it on their system and say these are the drivers who are going to come and get you these are the pricing up front to take you from your home to Joburg uh, uh Joburg airport right that would be great that's exactly what's the whole point of it so if a photographer says that uh this is what he can do for you this is he's going to travel to go here um that's that's his charge for the hour per hour and he's going to deliver this and you know straight away up front before you hire him with the price that likely changes everything because people and me especially i have to i think call about 10 to 20 photographers uh specifically for events and another 20 who do weddings and another 30 who can do uh, advertising photography only to discover many of them are not available or either they're too expensive um or they actually don't fall under the specialty you're looking for so that's essentially what the whole point is is to have a real time streamlined pricing that is fixed so that we can differentiate between a junior photographer and a senior photographer therefore helping startups uh hire the ones that they want for what they can afford And so what's also different I think in your concept which is quite fundamentally different to I think the thinking behind an Uber is I think Uber and I could be wrong about this I was I wasn't in the room when they were founded or I don't I can't be in the room, you know in the mind of Travis Kalanick I wouldn't want to be in the mind of Travis Kalanick that said um I think the idea was there is an industry ripe for disruption let us go disrupt it you know what I mean and I feel um from the moment you first told me about your business to to seeing it come to fruition and seeing you know and seeing it actually work in practice and everything i realized that you exist for them and not at their expense as it were you know when i talk about the people who actually use the platform so you exist for me as someone who who might book a, a photographer you exist for the photographer and 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 you see yourself as as a value proposition on both ends you don't see yourself as sort of this huge disruptive force that's going to steal market share from a from a lazy industry that hasn't sort of uh, transformed itself sufficiently to 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 keep up with people's needs i don't know if that makes sense it does and and i love i love the business vj my my question to play devil's advocate is let's let's paint a scenario um one of the photographers that was booked through your system takes a job arrives at my house um at my house i've got cameras and so I can see whatever's going on he takes a photo shoot and he happens to steal something off my table right I can prove to you that he stolen something off my table and I reach out and I say VJ your photographer stole something from my table my question to you is what is your you what's tapsnap's position in that scenario okay obviously we're a startup and we haven't built that part yet but here's the important thing because we can mediate uh, we can help you the disgruntled customer with this issue and we can actually negotiate with the photographer look we have this issue we have evidence how do you plead um you know you need to return that stuff otherwise you're going to ban you off the system it can no longer work um and we can actually mediate uh, legal proceedings for you you know in the future for example we can have insurance uh, policy uh, to assist photographers and yourself to guard guard against us so that just like airbnb if uh, you book your house out and something happens during that time airbnb has insurance <laughs> to 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 recover any losses if a, a really irate guy rents you your place for that time except that's also not such a good uh, a good example because they've also like come short on that but I, i i get what you're going with this but i mean on some level you're saying um you are owning fully your responsibility in 
in basically bringing the parties together at least to at least to mediate so that when you When, when the photographer says, I, you, uh, let's take a, an example that's going to be more common, uh, not maybe the stealing part, but let's say you asked for 30 photographs and I want it delivered tomorrow and he gave you 20 and it took you one week, right? Photographer says, no, I delivered what he asked for. But you say, no, I asked for 30. But we have evidence that you booked for 30 and you asked for 48 hour delivery, right? We can mediate then and then we can hold on to the money until he gives you all 30. So the money isn't released only once he's fully delivered and we can prove that. That's why the mediation exists with TapSnap. So my, and, and, I, and, I, and I completely believe that. I think participation in the process and ownership of the resultant consequence is important. My experience, and as I've mentioned before, my wife has got a few Ubers uh, you know, that she manages. My experience has been that every time there has been an issue, Uber's response has been It's not our, it's not it's not us you know you, you need to figure it out we don't we don't hire drivers we don't employ people therefore make a plan in fact i've heard recently now they're going to charge you i believe in the us i don't know if they're going to roll that out here charge you 15 dollars to get something back if you forget it in the car or something like that well there you go so so that that as a as as a behavior as a consequence of them fundamentally saying we actually don't care right and i think that's where i have the problem is that if you if that is your your, your starting point and you are breaking the law and you still have an expectation that this thing will perpetuate that's where i think there's a, there's a there's a disconnect i think every platform that is the uber of you know has a responsibility but also has to participate wholly so to stand back and say we don't have to participate because we don't we don't we don't employ any drivers i think was an acceptable stand an unacceptable standpoint and that is just one example of kind of the attitude that has come out of the business from my experience And so let's, I mean, there are two elephants in the room, at, at least when we come to, the, you know, South Africa's, specific to South Africa, the taxi industry here, then they're both black. Okay. The first one, to my mind, maybe there are more elephants, let me know. Um, <laughs> um, the first one is the fact that this is one of the last truly black owned industries of note within sort of, within, within, within South Africa. I mean, when I say black owned, I mean, um, it's, it's not, it's no secret. The vast majority of, South Africa's economy is owned and controlled by a white minority and uh and really the 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 taxi industry is on some level a proxy for the last little thing that black people get to own on their terms right okay so that's that's one thing and you could unpack that we don't have time to get into that I'm just sharing this to give everyone context and speaking to your point again barging into Uh, a legacy environment like that and, and and taking no account of what's come before and why things are the way they are do, doesn't seem to me as a sensible proposition. So that's the first elephant. The second one I see is the, the, the elephant of an industry that unfortunately by and large is controlled by a, a, a very powerful few black people within that industry, right? Whether, whether you look at it from the taxi association bosses or even the taxi bosses. I mean, you know, it's got a trickle down effect that impacts millions and millions of people, no doubt. But um, in terms of its control and economic control and a lot of that control thrives in a chaotic environment where you can't trace every rand you can't you know what i mean you 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 know the, the very account that we want to hold uber to let's be fair um i don't see no taxi boss uh you know <laughs> trying to help you find your lost umbrella in his taxi or, or 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 sort of helping you sue his driver because you know he 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 you know he rolled over your foot or do you get what i'm saying unfortunately and I, and, and not to paint every sort of taxi driver and every taxi owner and every taxi association with the same brush we have a legacy 
of that very industry not serving us, we the people, um, with the respect and dignity and certainly delivering the value it should. And on some level, at least for a middle class, you know, young black person like me, um, Uber hit such a sweet spot because it addresses on some level the the most pertinent discomfort I would experience having to use public transport of any kind. And on some level that that's the uncomfortable terrain. We sort of have to have this discussion about what makes sense. And then, of course, there's the annoying fact that Uber's sitting over in Silicon Valley, making all the money over there, and all of us feel a certain way about that, and most of it's not great. <laughs> well, you must see Uber, as you said, Uber is a utility, right? It's helping you connect. Uber actually, for some reason, doesn't see themselves as an employer. We are an app. Well, we know why. I mean, as soon as they did that, I mean, the, the economics would be horrible and they'd have a lot more admin to think. So we know why. But they don't see themselves, to your point, they don't see themselves as an employer. Yeah. Exactly. So in order to admit that they're not an employer, they have to admit that we cannot help you mediate certain things. Uh, it's, we are helping you connect. If they say, yes, we are an employer, oh, then we have to do medical aid, we have to do all these legal proceedings, it's, it'll get too expensive and Uber cannot exist on, on, on that front. That's why they have to admit and accept or, or tell people, sorry, we cannot help you. We are an app that helps you connect from A to B. What happens in between is between the you and the driver. And with you, I mean, you come into an industry where that expectation doesn't even exist because there's you know, the freelancing within like the photography business has been a thing forever. I mean, uh, you, you get booked as a freelance artist. I mean, your insurance is your issue. Your, you know what I mean? On some level. Um, you don't. You're not walking into an industry where an, a, a photographer would assume by signing up for your to, to be a part of your service that you are their employee. In fact, quite the opposite. They'd be quite vehemently opposed to any notion that they work for you. Exactly. It, it works like a freelance system, except we do fixed prices. We say you belong in this category, therefore this is a price. Do you accept yes or no? Right. You don't have to accept the price. You you will get an email saying this is the price that we want to charge for this service. Can you take it? And what do you take off that, by the way? Uh, it's it's between 6 to 12%, depending on the urgency of the shoot, right? Uh, so if they say yes, that means they've just accepted the terms and conditions of, the, of, of our shoot, and they'll go do it. We don't treat them as, a, as, as an employee because they are freelancers. They are working at their own time. They're working, and we send them a job request. Can you take this yes or no? That's what it is. Hmm. There's, I see the wheels turning in Musa Kalenga over there. He's trying to work out. I, I, I see, and I, I can almost see the speed, the thought bubble above your head going. Okay, so over over here, taps, snap over here. Yeah, and you, I, I see what you're doing, right? And I, and I love this discussion. You know why? Because it's so easy to put Uber. On, on blast, you know, and really, really why I wanted you to come. And, and I also know that the whole idea of the Uber, the Uber, Uber this and Uber that is at the heart of a lot of startup founders who listen to us and thinking, Hey, that's the, that's low hanging fruit. Let me try, you know, let me be the Uber for DJs. Let me be the Uber for this. But there are real deep implications for taking that route um, uh, that you sort of need to grapple with and be wise to um, outside of, can you sort of create a great app and can you execute on bringing two parties together in a marketplace, right? Uh, that's essentially it. Uh, what would uh, photographers do in the past? Uh, we say, okay, let's do exactly what they did, except now they don't have to spend 80% of their time trying to market themselves. We're doing it for them. And then they, like an Uber driver, they would wait and someone will pop up and say someone wants to ride with you and you click accept. It's essentially the same thing. They'll get a notification in the email or phone saying that uh, there's a shoot available in your area, would you take it, yes or no? You just say yes or no, that's it. 
So we're going to leave it here for now. What we do want to do is open up this discussion to all of our listeners. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you make of this trend towards the Uber this and the Uber that, the Uberization of almost everything. And and um, we, we hold the likes of Uber, and rightfully so, to a, to quite lofty standards um, because really we can and should. Um, but And I think it also speaks to what Yaba and them are doing in, in, their, in their context. Like what sort of standards should we stand by and espouse and... And, and really demand from people who want to engage with our markets, you know, with our technology, and certainly with our money. So give us a shout on Twitter, at African Roundup, or give us a shout on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup, or indeed send us an email or a voice note using hello at africantechroundup.com. Now, very quickly, gentlemen, um, we're running quite close to an hour at this point, right? And... Um, I almost feel like we should have Vijay back to have this other discussion, but I, I want to seed it at least, and maybe we can have you back at another point and we can sort of check the temperature um, and, and have it again. But uh, Vijay, actually, just to so let you guys know, Vijay reached out to us um, a week and a half ago in the wake of an article that I published in African Independent and Business Report um, all I did really was outline some of the findings of a report that was put out by Village Capital. So I guess it's worth mentioning that the Bill and Melinda Foundation funded that report. As to why, I don't know. We will have someone from Village Capital on the show pretty soon. So I will ask some of these questions and, and, and find out what their motivation was. Nevertheless, this research found that um, startup funding that went into India and um, East Africa, um, fintech-specific funding, seemed to favor not seem to favor, pretty much favored um, companies that were either run by expats or by Africans with sort of Ivy League connections and that kind of thing. A ridiculous percentage of funding uh, went to only three or four companies over a two-year period with 57-odd having to share the, the balance. And so it just sparked this there's huge debate on Twitter. I, I've never had anything I wrote like go viral to that extent. And it was really telling uh, some of the, 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 the stuff that came through. Uh, so we'll break this whole issue down piecemeal over time. We won't try and do it all right now. What I do want Vijay to speak to is some of the, the thinking that came out of uh, an entrepreneur network, a pan-African entrepreneur network that he's a part of. And apparently this article landed in the midst of them and yeah, apparently it got lit. So, Vijay, what sort of discussions did you guys have? What's the network you're part of, first of all? Uh, it's called the African Diaspora Network. It's part of Tip Hub. Um, shout out to the Tip Hub guys if they're listening. Um, essentially, what they found out was, okay, these were some, fin- some of them were fintech founders uh, who had good funding and some of them still trying to get funding in all other industries like food delivery in Chicago, things like that. So, it's African diaspora, not just in Africa, uh, right? So, this is what we discovered that that money, the bulk of the money comes out of the United States or Europe. So it's Western-owned. So they tend to trust the Western founders uh, that they know of because the expats have a prior relationships with them for many years. So when they uh, um, launch their startup and they raise their funds and their rounds, it's much easier for them to get the, uh, to get the money. Not because they're the ones with the money, it's because it's easier for them They have that network. While African-grown um, startups can't do it because they don't have their prior network. They're starting from scratch. So on some level, it's an admission that there is bias and a sort of explanation as to why. My answer to that is I don't have to like it. I get you. I totally get you. I get investors prefer to, to deal with people they like and know and, and are used to and people who look like them and feel like them. And um, I just don't, I just happen to think that sucks. 
<laughs> I don't know if you. The, the issue is that's okay. Um, what I'm saying, what I'm saying is that's not the the bad thing. It's just that don't go investing in just expat owned companies, and then say we are for Africa and we are for this and we are the children and we are the future, and then you go and fund people that you know of that comes from your place. That doesn't work. Rather and admit it. Rather admit it and say this is how we fund. To tone down what what could be sort of. Uh, boundless idealism. Um, I just have to admit that not not everyone is just waking up in the morning trying to be prejudiced and racist, or you know, you know, trying to make sure that only people like them get money and that kind of thing. Sometimes it's a blind spot, and I get it. It still sucks. Yeah. But what else did you discover? And Musa, factor in any time you like at this point. Musa's holding himself back. I think it's the, there's like an inner rage I see on his face. But nevertheless, let's get through this, uh, Vijay. So that was one important thing. Um, and it, African founders are all saying these things. On some level, they're like, listen, this is, the, this is, this is just how it is, right? Yeah. Okay. The, essentially, they're saying is that we need to build our own uh, wealth someday and start uh, building it ourselves. But that's another issue. Uh, Musa is more angry about Uber still, I think. Um, <laughs> but what, this, is what this is what they're saying. Startup funding goes to hyperscale companies. Venture capitalists have a mandate. We want to build hyperscale companies. We put in a million dollars and you grow 10 times in three years. African founders build companies that solve African problems. Hyperscale companies usually go global, like your Uber, like your Airbnb. We don't have African companies that have done that because the money that's being given to them solves, you need to solve hepatitis A happening in Malawi. You need to solve the water issue that's happening in Kenya. But if you, if you bring a hyperscale company to them, ah, oh, but that's not really an African problem. We can't. But you said, invest in hyperscale. We're giving you a hyperscale idea. Let's make an African version of Airbnb and bring in, uh, you know, ecotourism. No, no, you know what? We need to put our money into uh, AIDS and all that stuff. So that's the issue. So that's, fun- that's the, the, fun- the problem. The sort of funding is going through Catch-22. Hyperscale, but also Africa is not supposed to be hyperscaling. It's supposed to be solving your own problems. And then, and then one of the points I made in my, in my article, you know, actually the point I was making is that um, every level of growth, of startup growth, where finance is required, all the way up to IPO, there are syndicated financial efforts that are made that help everyone involved in these deals sort of spread the risk. And in the case of Uber, we're even seeing a situation where it almost ensures at the high end um, of that of that spectrum like something that's too big to fail, right? And we can never build that. If we're right at the bottom, we don't even have an angel scene to speak of, never mind syndication at a national, regional, or, or, or continental level. And really that was the point I was making. I was like, guys, um, I see this happening. I hate it. It sucks. If you're an investor who's currently biased and making decisions on these sort of weird prejudicial bases and stuff like that, well, not only are you missing out on a lot, you know, you suck, you know, <laughs> you suck. But um, it, it's also on us as, a, as an ecosystem to to see to the, the growth of a foundational angel scene, syndicate deals that actually creates a significant deal flow. And, and then we can start, sort of start to attack, you know, funding at the various levels, you know, pre-seed, seed, you know, series A and, and, and beyond. Uh, be, but before we do that, I mean, we can complain, we can certainly hold people to account, we can point it out when it happens and that kind of thing. But um, we can't expect that bias to go away. Certainly, especially when we see angel investors and VC interests here, wait to see what the overseas guys are going to do and then join in the deals. I mean, that's how bad the bias goes to the point where we're biased to, towards it as well. In fact, that's another thing that they came out with is that the local guys, the African guys who want to fund African businesses, 
um, see what the European investments doing. They see what the Silicon Valley guys are doing. And they put their money there because they don't have the risk capital to risk it on their own. So even the local guys end up putting money into the expat businesses because they want their money to be safe because investments work like syndication. When one investor invests in one company, another will invest in the same one. There's no rule that says, okay, you invest in that, I'll go invest in this one. No. If you invest in that, I'll invest in that too because it needs to syndicate so it grows in such a way that it's ready for the next stage, which is Series A, Series B, so that you're ready for IPO someday. And so there is another elephant in the room in this regard in terms of like the the capital that um, – uh, so the real wealth. We, we talk there's, – there's like riches – and there's wealth with a capital with a small W, and then there's a wealth with a big W. All right. So in terms of that wealth, that's actually African in, in actual African hands. Um, a lot of that's probably no more than thirty, maybe forty years old at most. And and I suppose the risk profile for that kind of wealth, or the you know for those kind of dollars, is totally different to the kind of to the kind of risk profile or the risk. Or appetite of those kind of dollars in a place like Europe or elsewhere. And I suppose that's one admission I would make in saying that I don't know if I was sitting on a generational nest egg of half a billion, if I'd be crazy gung-ho about investing in startups to the extent that I should really in that, being in that position should be. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I, it, Musa, you're, you've successfully landed some investment for some of your ventures um, without putting you on the spot or anything. Uh, like, I, are any of these things ringing true for you? They certainly are. I mean, I think on a foundational level, I agree completely with the sentiments expressed. I think, um, you know, if we just look at the way African entrepreneurs think about problems, I do think they're too local. Um, I don't think in them being too local, and I don't think they're being they're thinking about them too locally because anyone told them that. It's because that's where the pain point is, and they're trying to solve that pain point. Now, being able to layer that with the notion of global scalability is something that is not innate to an African entrepreneur, right? So the responsibility from angel networks, uh, past guys who've done great exits, African guys who've been exposed, the responsibility is for them to try and kind of figure out a way to seed that that experience, to almost bake it into the next generation of guys. Because I don't think it's fair anymore to say that you don't know. Um, I think, you know, maybe when we were, you know, a couple of years ago, you could have accused someone or said someone didn't know that they can sell a, start a business in Africa and sell it in Paris. Now I don't think that's an excuse. But what is not happening is that that's not being passed on and that's not being seeded, uh, number one. Number two, I think then obviously naturally, as Vijay has said, it then makes our investment landscape automatically fall into a bucket that is generally undesirable to the guys who've got big money. Um, and that automatically then categorizes us into a particular box. And that's what then kind of is the, is, is the cycle that we have to break. So, so all of that on principle, I agree with. And my experience has been exactly that. In fact, I was having a conversation just, uh, just yesterday um, with someone that was challenging me around our current business to say, why are you guys thinking so small about this? Um, why are you guys thinking about this in the context of Africa only. Um, There's problems that you could be solving in Mexico, Argentina, Philippines, Cuba, Peru, that your technology solves. Why? And... And and I didn't actually set out not to think that way, but because I get I got caught up in doing what needs to be done, my mind went into that space. So the ability for a 
founder or any tech entrepreneur to be able to have that value to move out and kind of take a helicopter view, have a helicopter view of economics, of markets. That's a luxury, um, let alone accessing that information that can allow them to make those decisions. So, so my experience is, 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 is nothing different to what we've expressed. Um, but my frustration is that it's not, it, that still doesn't make it okay, right? It still doesn't make it something that we should at any point um, become complacent about. Um, and we need to be very deliberate about ensuring that anybody who's listening to this podcast understands that it's broken and that we need to fix it. Um, are we actively on a daily basis getting it right? Probably not. But I'm glad that we're actually having the conversation and we're holding certain people accountable. Um, what that means in the value chain is that as we learn, as, as memory structures grow, as fiber and networks grow, that the guys that come after us will do a better job and, and so on and so forth. So solving it all at once is probably not going to be reali- realistic. But uh, I'm certainly kind of struggling through some of those issues on, on a daily basis. And I'm, and I'm acutely aware um, of making those decisions not only for myself but those that come after. So, so that's, my, that's my experience and that's my view. But uh, we have to start from the conversation. The the other point I made in my article is we need to grow a culture of alternative funding. And I, and I think that that's a wide space opportunity for Africa in terms of what that needs to look like, in terms of I see tr- micro traction in at least aspirationally trying to speak to this idea that we need to finance uh, businesses in Africa differently to the way they might be financed in, in say, Silicon Valley. and where, you know. So I, at least in spirit, I, I see what they're trying to do. And I, I mean, we obviously unpacked why that might, you know, the way they're going about it might not be, you know, quite the way they should or uh, at least... Might, might be unsuccessful in the end. But um, I, I was speaking to, obviously, Angel Investment Syndicates as part of that alternative investment scenario. And there's an exciting new crop of, I call them creative financiers. And they're not always African. And I don't necessarily believe they have to be. That's the other thing um, I think people kind of mistook from our article. I'm not saying let's cut out expats. Let's not do deals with the West. Let's be populist and nationalist or anything like that. That's not the issue. What I'm excited about is vehicles that are allowing us to participate, find traction, build a minimum viable product, you know, survive into, you know, series A size without sort of having to compromise the values of, you know, you espouse as a startup founder. So tell me a little bit about some of what you are finding, VJ, in this context. You're almost like three strikes lucky. I mean, you've, you, the last three uh, startups you founded have us all fairly successful going concerns. And, and you're certainly looking at trying to tap VC money for for the for for tap snap. Tell me about what you're finding in the sort of alternative finance scene that might be exciting. Well, the problem is in the alternative uh, investment side of things. They like these keywords that you could have put in there in your in your investments to make it um, investable. Uh, got to mention AI somewhere, right? I got to say pot somewhere. I've got to say it's fintech somewhere. Yeah, say pot. Marijuana? No, bot. Bot. Oh, bot. <laughs> well, pot might help, but, but but bot is what they want. They want these uh, keywords. It's always this trendy, just like uh, uh, any health fads that happens right now. They'll invest in that. The problem is they don't they don't look at the problem of the startup uh, solving something that's going on in the country or in the world. They know that this is the trend right now. Let's invest in it. I think the, the there was an article done by one of these companies. Um, startups have mentioned AI like 800% increase or something in the last two years because saying it gets your attention on of VCs. In their, so if your pitch deck doesn't have AI or bots in it, hey, dude, you're not getting that money. I mean, if I bring out an AI system that can intelligently give you the right driver uh, to come pick you up from Uber, you know, that's going to do well. <laughs> 
you know, you want you want a, you want a bold driver, right? You know, who, for example, uh, uh, cleans himself and and is very punctual. You know, AI will identify it based on the breath mints that he eats. It'll come right at you and pick you up. That's the kind of stupid AI stuff that that people are doing um, that gets attention of VCs, and that's that's that would be the creative thing I'm talking about. You've got to actually put those keywords in there somewhere to somehow get them to look at you. So that aside, though, <laughs> and, to, and your points are actually well taken. In fact, we were talking, you know, before the show started about, um, is it Juicero? Uh, this diabolical failure that, that um, Silicon Valley is reeling from. Um, and just, again, bias at play there. Um, no doubt the right type of individual in terms of profile, probably in probably a whole bunch of Ivy Leagues of a certain race group, of a certain gender, with a pitch deck with the right keywords in it, with the right network to get the first sort of several several million bucks that signal to everyone else that more bucks should come to create a pretty nonsensical product that no one needs. Um, on the flip side, there's... VJ with a fairly, you know, clever, perhaps on some level, relatively simpler product and platform that does deserve the cash in order to grow at least, at least the chance to prove that it should be, it should exist or not. Um, but can't even get like a, a decent deal or an angel investor to back or either through an, an angel syndicate or through a, a, a VC. That must be frustrating. Yeah, it's quite frustrating because uh, the problem is, like I said, they're looking for the keywords in the emails. If it doesn't really fall in, they just uh, ignore it. So they probably have AI running like searches through your emails. Yes. They probably have AI looking at key- keyword keywords and searches like it must say this and must say that. Okay, then go with it. Someone must say he is a Stanford grad. Okay, let's look at that. You know, uh, look at Jusero. Jusero, I think is is one Ivy League, like you said, Ivy League guy. Um, he pushed the right buttons um, and he built a product that went through a specific health fad, which is pressed juice, which is going on right now. Everyone wants pressed juice. So he, he rode on that and he built something, uh, over $120 million funding to build an MVP product. You know, that's a billion rand. They, he got more money. It's 120 pre-seed. That's, that's pre-seed, yes. Uh, that's more money than the, the, the entire value of Take-A-Lot. That's more money than, flew, that, than flowed into uh, East Africa's fintech scene in, in, over the last two years. Exactly. One company in, in, in a one-month session of funding. Okay. So, so there was that, um, there's a Canadian firm or an Irish firm that's actually doing interesting things that you were telling me about earlier. Um, there's, there is a firm called Lucy Fund um, that actually opened to African startups, uh, especially South Africa, is what they do a two-thirds, one-third model. So if, if it costs $100,000 on a technical perspective, because they help you specifically with technical and some marketing. So if your app that needs to be developed is going to cost $100,000, right, they will put in uh, $70,000, you need to put in $30,000, if you can put it up, they will develop the app for you. Uh, and then they will take a 6% stake in the company and you get a pre-valuation or post-valuation of about six hundred dollars to $700,000. And that's a nice model because they have done quite a few projects already and it's helped a few companies who have battled to raise because if you have a model like this, you can actually syndicate easier because now that you have a funding organization helping you with resources, you can actually get uh, additional funds from a VC who says, ah, you've got 
this and this, I can put in something and then your post valuation is even higher. I like to be solutions oriented. Um, uh, you know, my articles are only like a thousand, two hundred words odd, you know, so I mean, can't stuff everything in there. But I, I the reason I, I think this was so important to talk about is because we've, uh, we've we we like to highlight issues we like to hold um you know responsible parties to account we want to own parts of the issues we ought to own in order to to push our own ecosystem forward we want to we don't want to sort of put the burden of action and improvement on other people when we should be doing the stuff at the same time we need solutions that we can try heck um, and we've said a lot about microtraction and why we feel like that model might not work here's one that you know could very well um, be applied by a local VC outfit. There's a crowdfunding VC effort uh, about to be launched in, in South Africa. We'll definitely hear more about that in, in the coming weeks. I think this is the time Africa needs to take to experiment. We, we know what's broken. Um, we're getting more and more attuned to what's broken and how it needs to be fixed. Let's put our heads together Let, at whatever level, whether it's at a community level, like Yaba is showing us to do, at an angel investment level, that's that ABAN is is spearheading. Um, whether it's venture capital interest like Microtraction and and others, um, foreign venture capital interest like Lucy, or even bigger funds um, at a, at a startup founding level, um, people like us need to put our heads together to figure out how we can sustainably move forward for the good of this entire ecosystem. The last time we had a chat this long, we had a Kenyan in the building. We have a South African who um, is arguably one of the more connected Africans in South Africa, I think, within the startup ecosystem. Why is it that South African uh, startup founders don't connect as readily to the pan-African system? Just out of interest, do you think? I don't know. Um, If you ask a South African, they don't believe they're African. Haven't you seen that? So... We also behave a bit like uh, Silicon Valley, where we think we are our own country, when you don't really belong in the African continent. I'm doing air quotes right now. So that's why they're not networking as, as, readily, as readily as possible. And, and I think travel, I don't think South Africans travel naturally. Um, it's never been something that I've ever experienced as young South Africans. Actually, it's starting to change, but traditionally they're not the kind of people that will travel Africa, let alone, well, maybe, maybe Europe, but less so in the Africa context. So maybe that's why a combination of those two things. Zimbabweans, on the other hand, try and stop us from getting in your country. Try. Like, <laughs> I love it. Like, I don't know, embargoes, sanctions, like, don't give us, we'll get there. We'll get there. But listen, guys, thank you so much. I'm just going to um, one last time thank um, GoDaddy for sponsoring this episode of the African Tech Roundup. Remember that you too can buy your own domain name, build your site, or use any of GoDaddy's business tools and save yourself 30% by going to trygodaddy.com forward slash African Tech. Thank you. Um, one last time, I want to thank Musa Kalenga. Seriously, as, as far as co-hosts go, it's such a blast. I look forward to recording these shows every every single time because I know you'll be there. So thanks again. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Andile, and thank you, guys. Always a pleasure. And then, of course, Vijay. Vijay Dranath. Vijay Vijendranath. Vijay Vijendranath. That's correct. Yeah, it's nice to be here, and I had a lovely chat. 
Yeah, dude. Uh, just keep doing what you're doing. We'll be ch- checking the sky for all the startups that um, you're involved in. Congratulations with this particular one. Um, show show the way. Lead the way in terms of the, the, the Uber of this and the Uber that. Show us how it ought to be done. Um, of course, uh, uh, VJ's business one last time is Tap Snap with a double P at the end. Uh, .co. Check it out. Uh, and again, we'd love to know what you think about um, how this whole trend towards on-demand marketplaces, what it might need to start to look like for Africa to fully take hold of it and, and benefit from it fully. I believe that VJ is one of the better examples of what that can look like. But let us know what you think, okay? So yeah, otherwise, I'm the last one on the mic um, as per usual, and it's my job to say thank you once again for listening to us. My name is Andina Masugu. Until next time, Africa, do take care. <laughs>